on your copy of God's Word, I encourage you to turn with me to Psalm 19. Psalm 19 this morning. Hear God's Word for you this morning. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward." Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord for you today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Lord, guide us, direct us. Father, empower me, fill me with your spirit for this that you've called me to. And Lord, open our eyes, our ears, soften our hearts, unite our hearts to fear your name. Give us the glimpse of your glory in the face of Christ Jesus. We pray for your glory and for our good and joy. Amen. C.S. Lewis once wrote this. He said, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Those are some pretty strong words, and I'm sure that there are many people who wouldn't agree with him. I know personally, I never once studied Psalm 19 in school as an example of excellent poetry. Well, honestly, I never studied a single psalm in any school besides seminary as an example of excellent poetry. Yet when a literary giant like Lewis states words like that, it it tends to grab my attention personally. Makes me want to look a bit more closely at this text. Because if he was willing to state those words, I would imagine he had a pretty good reason for it. When we look at this text, it breaks down, you'll see it in most of your Bibles, into either three or four sections, and I think it's very easy to to discern three sections very, very quickly. And I think breaking it down that way works really well for us. If you look at verses one through six, uh, we have what I would call the voice of nature, the voice of nature, general revelation. It's the knowledge of God through nature, through creation. Then in verses 7 to 11, there's the voice of Scripture, uh, what we would call special revelation. 
This is the voice of God by the law or through the law. Scripture is that more specific and necessary revelation that humanity requires in order to to comprehend and grasp the, the knowledge of the gospel to know more about what it means to be saved. We can, we can know in creation that there is a God, but to know who that God is and what that God requires of us, we need special revelation. We need Scripture. And then finally, in verses 12 through 14, is the voice of prayer. Here's the response that's generated in us when we have an encounter uh, with, with the Lord in the fullness of His revelation. We grasp His glory in all of creation and in Scripture And then we respond to that glory appropriately. Now, that's the very simple structure. Beyond that structure, um, this psalm is an interesting one in that there is actually, there's, there's no real connection logically or structurally between the first section and the remaining two. Um, If you read through it, structurally, there's just no major connection. And for some, that has led them to speculate that perhaps this is actually David combining two separate poems. Now, personally, I don't agree with that. I think this is one poem, and I actually believe that Lewis would have agreed with that as well. As a matter of fact, I actually believe that that absence of this clear connection of why he goes from six to seven is actually evidence of why Lewis loved this poem so much. He believed that some modern poets, they, they have the tendency to make, um, and this is probably why I don't like poetry that well, but he, that, they, that they'll say one thing and then this abrupt change and there's absolutely no way I have any idea why they made that change. And a lot of modern poets have done that, especially modern in Lewis's time, at that, where there's no connection. He actually did not believe that the psalmist was doing that in any way, shape, or form. He wrote this. He said, I I think he, David, felt effortlessly and without reflecting on it, so close a connection between his first theme and his second that he passed from one to the other without realizing that he had made any transition. First, he thinks of the sky, how... Day after day, the pageantry we see there shows us the splendor of its creator. Then he thinks of the sun, the bridal joyousness of its rising, the unimaginable speed of its daily voyage from east to west, finally of its heat. Not, of course, the mild heats of our climate, but the cloudless, blinding, tyrannous rays hammering the hills, searching every cranny. The key phrase on which the whole poem depends is, there is nothing hidden from the heat thereof. It pierces everywhere with its strong, clean ardor. Then at once in verse 7, he is talking of something else, which hardly seems to him something else because it is so like the all-piercing, all-detecting sunshine. The law is undefiled. The law gives light. It is clean and everlasting. It is sweet, luminous, severe, disinfectant, exultant. See, Lewis saw this connection. He saw this the, 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 the creation in all its glory and then the, the picture of the sun. And he's like, the, the connection is so clear because as the, as the sun searches out, so does Scripture. And so there really is actually a very strong, logical, and thematic connection between these sections. Now, as we jump into this, there are a few other things I want us to consider as we look at the psalm. One, it's a creation psalm. We've already looked at a creation psalm. We've looked at Psalm 8. Um, there are a few others in the Psalter. Uh, but this psalm also contains wisdom. We see that in, particularly in 7 through 11. 
but it also contains some bits of lament. Okay, when you have confession, when you have an encounter with God and there's confession and a searching out of sin, there is an aspect of lament to that. Now, hopefully, all this just kind of sets the stage, whets our appetite a little bit as we get ready to dig into this beautiful text. So, the first portion of this text, verses 1 through 6, really falls into to two, um, two sections. In the first four verses, you have a beautiful song of, to creation, to, to the glory of God in creation. And then in verses 4c, so the third line of verse 4, through verse 6, there's a focus on the sun itself, um, the most glowing feature really in creation that we can see. So let's look at verses 1 through 4 again. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. The heavens declare the glory of God. We've heard something similar to that, haven't we, when we looked at Psalm 8. You have set your glory above the heavens. Now, Psalm 19 takes this and delves really specifically into the the prevalence of this revelation of the glory of God. That's what we see in these first few verses is just the prevalence that the, the heavens, the sky, wherever we look, it all testifies to the fact that there is a God, there is a creator, and he is glorious. I love the phrase, night to night reveals knowledge. Think about this. Just try and imagine this for a second. What would it be like if there were no night? If there were no night sky to look up? What would we be? We'd be missing the the view of the stars and everything else. We we would miss that in so many ways. So David is saying, every night there's something more that we can see. Night to night reveals the knowledge of God. You know, with it we see these vast lights the glory throughout the heavens, and it all points to God, and it brings up that question that David posed in Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you should care for him? And this testimony is heard, though, round the clock. It's just, it's not night to night. It says in the beginning of verse 2, day to day pours out speech. That, that language of pours out gives a, an image of irrepressibility. Nothing is stopping it. It's it's as if a dam has been broken and it's just gushing out. It's pouring out. You cannot stop it. The dissemination of the glory of God will go forth. All we have to do is be open, to be receptive, to receive what is being told to us. And Because what we have all around us is a chorus, though technically it's a voiceless testimony. It's a beautiful paradox in many ways that day to day, this wordless voice is heard over and over and over again. Throughout all the earth to the the end of the world, the words are known. They are clearly communicated. God is the glory. His glory is known in creation. The Apostle Paul put forth much the same point in Romans 1. Verses 19 and 20, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. See, it's everywhere. This, this voiceless speech is everywhere. It's, it's prominent. And the most prominent display, though, is seen in the sun. Here's one of the most powerful testimonies to God. The glory of the sun, it's not a testimony to its own divinity, which too many in, in the past have, have moved towards, but it's actually to the creator of that glorious ball of fiery gas that sits in the heavens. Look at the end of verse 4. In them, so in the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So moving across our sky, from our perspective, from morning to evening, the sun processes with glory. David gives us a couple of images to consider this. The first is that of, of a bridegroom. The point of contact is this dazzlingly decked out groom as he moves from his chamber to go to his bride. There's strength and grace and, and joy in that movement, in that journey. It's done with absolute anticipation and, and even those who witness that journey experience it with joy. It's this beautiful thing that happens. And then the second is that of a strong man or, or really the, the picture is almost of a runner, a, a champion who runs... <clears throat> who runs the course with, with absolute dominance and skill. And when I think of that, the picture I have is actually not of a guy right now, but it's of a female runner, a girl by the name of Sydney McLaughlin. If, if, if any of you watch the World Championships in track and field, she ran the 400-meter hurdles and continued to break her own world record, um, just absolutely dominated on the track. It was, it was amazing to watch. Her 400-meter hurdle time would have been fifth in the 400 with no hurdles. That's how fast she was. And when she ran, it was literally like just watching a victory lap because you knew Sydney was going to win. And it was amazing to watch. Everything felt like that. It was so skillfully done. There's great joy as she did what she was created to do in so many ways. It reminded me of Eric Little in some ways. You know, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. When, when the sun moves across our sky with joy, it, it points to the glory of God. The sun is doing what it's created to do. The trouble is, though, most of us miss that beauty. It's not that we can miss the fact that the sun is out, but the speech that the sun pours out, we're not really tuned to it day in and day out. To the magnificence, we're attuned to other things, to lesser lights, to fleeting shadows. How many people do you see when they're standing on a street corner waiting for something are looking up in amazement at the glory of God? Most of them are looking at amazement at a little device in their hands and not even talking to the person next to them. We miss what God has put on display for us all to see and to see His glory. Well, then comes this final clause. There is nothing hidden from its heat. This short and, 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 and seemingly inconsequential line serves as a bridge, a beautiful bridge. For as the sunshine reveals everything, so does God's Word reveal everything in our hearts and lives. 
There's nothing hidden from the heat of the sun. There's nothing hidden in our lives from the searching heat and light of the law of God, of the Scriptures. Listen, all of nature points to God and His glory. That's true. Charles Simeon wrote this. He said, God has not left Himself without witness. His works testify of Him. They speak silently indeed, but intelligibly to every child of man so that all are absolutely without excuse. Wherever the light and genial influence of the sun extend, there is God proclaimed as an infinitely wise and gracious being. But, but we have a richer source of instruction opened to us. We have a revelation which, whilst it it proclaims the existence and attributes of Jehovah, makes known to us His will and points out the path in which we may approach Him with a certainty of acceptance and so extensively was that published by our Lord and His apostles that it might be said even in that age, their sound went into all the earth and their words unto the ends of the world. Scripture testifies everywhere, and that's what we move into now is the voice of Scripture. Look at verses 7 through 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are are true and righteous all together. Here we have just this conglomeration, this piling on of nouns and adjectives and, and, and benefits that come through Scripture, through special revelation. The, the nouns are all synonyms for the Scriptures, for the law of God, the instruction of the Lord. And that phrase, of the Lord, I think is important. If you notice in verses 1 to 6, it doesn't have Lord. It says God. It's Elohim. It's this, the, 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 the name for God that, that all people would know. Everyone knows of God because of creation. But only those who have the revelation of Scripture know of the Lord, the covenant God, Yahweh, as He reveals Himself to His people. So let's just move through these as David lays them out so skillfully for us. The law of the Lord is perfect. I just want you to try and imagine something perfect. No flaw whatsoever in any way. Maybe the perfect cut of a diamond. Or you think about it, a perfect meal. The, The night was just perfect. Those don't really even compare to the perfection of God. Psalm 1830, this God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. Nothing is off with the law of the Lord. Nothing. There's nothing wrong. It's an expression of the pure and and absolutely uh, um, perfect will of God, of His holiness, of the fact that He Himself is perfect, without stain, spot, or wrinkle. And so what does that law do? That perfect law revives the soul. This divine instruction brings refreshment. 
You've had times where you've been absolutely parched and you get that cool drink and you feel refreshed. You feel like, ah, I can, I can move again. I can, I can do something again because you've been refreshed. His word refreshes the soul that is often in weakness and despair because it's in his word that we actually find true hope. It's in his word that we find the words of life. But further then, he says, the testimony of the Lord is sure. It's his testimony. It's his, it's his charge. Actually, think of 1 John 5, verses 9 through 11. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning the Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is the testimony of the Lord. This is the testimony of Scripture. It's the gospel that God has saved his people from their sins. It's, it's of Christ. Now, David didn't have that fullness of revelation, but he did understand that grace came. Think about the preface to the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20. Like we think of the Ten Commandments and we think, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. But the preface in Exodus 20 verse 2 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Saying, I saved you by grace. Now live this way. This is good for you. This is good. You're here because I've been good to you. Because I rescued you. It's the testimony of the Lord that he saves his people. He delivers them. And it's a sure testimony. It's firm and confirmed, absolutely trustworthy. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And this testimony makes wise the simple. Folks, the gospel is good news. The testimony of the Lord is good news. It brings wisdom to those who lack it and are willing to receive it humbly. Now, the simple person is not a fool. The simple person is one who lacks wisdom, but a fool is a simple or maybe a pretentiously wise person who is one who refuses to receive the testimony of the Lord. So it's okay to be simple because he makes us wise as we humbly receive his word. And then David continues, the precepts of the Lord are right. The precepts, the, 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 the shadows of the gospel, forerunners that point all to, to all that God would do in Christ Jesus. That point to the holiness and the character of God. Maybe you could think through, because just think, remember, David had the first five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So Leviticus is, is good. <laughs> Numbers is good. Those precepts, the, the, the sacrificial laws, those things, they point to the holiness of God and they really rejoice the heart because they tell us that our God accepts the humble worshiper through a sacrifice. The ways of God are joy for us. They lead us into rejoicing because they, they help us live in the will of God in his good and acceptable and perfect will. They keep us from the way of the wicked 
from the path of rebellion. Charles Simeon again said, he said, ignorant men imagine that the application of God's word to the soul is productive only of pain and sorrow. But those who have ever tasted of the good word of life have found by happy experience that it fills them with joy and peace in believing, yea, with joy unspeakable and glorified. The word is to them the the charter of all their privileges and the map of their everlasting inheritance as an heir peruses with delight a will in which great wealth is unexpectedly bequeathed to him. So the Christian, finding in every page of the sacred volume his title to all the blessedness and glory of heaven, how can he but rejoice in such records? The word is good delight for his people. And the commandment of the Lord as well is pure. Perhaps this points to the moral law of God, the explicit commands. And those commands are not given uh, merely to, to regulate words and actions, but to actually steer our affections and our appetites, to teach us what to long for. They're not manipulative in any way, but they are there for our good. They're pure. Psalm 12, verse 6 The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Utterly pure, utterly good. And these commands enlighten the eyes. There is spiritual illumination. There's wisdom and awakening to what is good and true and beautiful in the Scriptures. Think of Paul when he said, you know, I I would have not even known what coveting was if it weren't for the law. It shows us how to live rightly. And then we come to this phrase, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And when I read through that, the biggest question I have is, why use the fear of the Lord here? Everything else has been a very clear synonym for the Word of God. We we normally think of the fear of the Lord as our response to the Lord. But Scripture does use it in an objective sense. Psalm 34, 11, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Not I will teach you how to fear the Lord, but I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Or Proverbs 1, 29, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. And there's a similar phrase, uh, usage of something along this lines in Genesis 31, verse 42, where God himself is called the fear of Isaac. He's called the fear of Isaac. Uh, so the scriptures can aptly be called here the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord. They teach us that which endures to all time. And that fear of the Lord, that the scriptures cleanse those who choose to heed them. Who choose to follow in the, in the path that is good. And then finally, we have the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. They conform to what is real. Uh, this is not myth. It's not falsehood. Genesis 1 does not start off with once upon a time. It starts off in the beginning, God. It's not a fairy tale. It's real and true. It's righteous. It's moral. It's free from sin. So here's a question that I think we have to ask all all of us have to ask ourselves is, how do we view this? 
How do we view the Word of God? How do we view Scripture? And I'm not asking just intellectually, but practically as well. Do do you see the beauty that the psalmist saw in the Scriptures? And it's okay if you don't see it to that fullness, but know that it's true. And so, so then do you submit yourself to this Word, to the Word of God that is pure and clean, that revives the soul, that's righteous altogether? Submit your life to what it tells us, what it reveals of God, so that you can truly submit to Him and, and enjoy life, live life to the full, to the, uh, abundantly. Or do you, like so many of us, often seek to submit Scripture to your own ideas and your own ways of life, where you stand in judgment over it? You who, I dare say, are not pure and clean and righteous altogether. This Word is good, and it's there for us. And the psalmist saw the treasure that is the Scriptures. Look at verse 10 and 11. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. The words of God are precious, worth more than, than pure gold. They're sweeter than honey. Lewis wrote, he says, sweeter than honey or if that metaphor does not suit us who have, had, um, who have not much uh, such a sweet tooth as all ancient peoples, partly because we have plenty of sugar, let us say that it's like mountain water or like fresh air after a dungeon, like sanity after a nightmare. I'm thinking, how many of you have ever caved or been deep underground and the air is just stagnant and nasty? Or you've sat on the tarmac for three hours? where the plane's not moving at all, and therefore there's no circulation, and you sweat, and it's just horrible, and you're like, please get me off this plane. And even airport air feels wonderfully refreshing. It is like, it's like that blast of fresh air. Scripture is so precious. Scripture protects us. It warns us. If you want to know how to live well, how to avoid error and pitfalls, how to please God, go to His Word. Of course, it, the, the, the most glorious thing that it tells us is of Jesus and the grace of God in Christ. That is glorious to know, but Scripture still does tell us how we are to live how we live in conformity to Christ, how we grow in conformity, how we grow in that that big word sanctification, become more and more like Christ. It it instructs us and searches us. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight. Doesn't that sound like the rays of the sun a little bit? 
No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Folks, when we know that's true, and when we've experienced it, it has to lead us to a response. When we're open and laid bare, we cry out. Look at verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. The instruction of the Lord searches us. We understand as we open up God's word that it opens us up. And it shows us how far from perfect we are, but yet reassures us of how deeply loved we are. That's a beautiful paradox that you find out you are worse than you ever thought you were and yet more loved than you could have ever dared dream. And folks, we're not even very good at discerning our own faults very well. They hide quite easily from us. It's like driving a kid to college and the whole car is full of stuff all the way up. Your blind spot's massive. You can't see any of the cars around you. It's tunnel vision sometimes. And so our prayer is to help us discern how we walk and live contrary to the ways of God. And, and we, we express a desire to be kept from those sins. Verses 12, uh, 11 and 12 here, or 12 and 13, they feel like part of the Lord's Prayer, don't they? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. These presumptuous sins the hidden faults, all of these things. They can have a, a tendency to take, uh, take a bit of control in our lives. The presumptuous sins are like predators waiting to pounce. Genesis 4-7 is the words talking to Cain. It says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. It's crouching at the door. It's just waiting for that weak one to come out and pounce. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. That is, is what we realize as Scripture opens us up. And we know it's there. And, and our desire is to, to live and be blameless. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And, and it's what he prays really in that final verse, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Even seeing that, how he knows he's relying on grace. Calls God his rock, his, his shelter, his refuge, but also his redeemer. The one who saved him. The one who's cared for him. The one who's called him out of darkness. And he wants even his thoughts, his, his meditations to be acceptable, not merely outward actions, but everything. This is the cry and the tale of a converted heart. There's conviction of sin, 
and there's a desire for holiness. Conviction of sin and a desire for holiness. And that, that holiness is not to earn standing. Again, remember, he calls him his redeemer. It's not to earn standing with the Lord, but to please the one who has declared his children his and declared us clean and righteous in Christ, forgiven because of the work of Christ. And so we should desire to live according to God's words. Folks, only Jesus has ever done that fully, completely, and perfectly. And he's the one who's died for our hidden errors and our presumptuous sins. Listen, God's glory is revealed everywhere. Everywhere. Just look up. You're outside, look up, look around. It's seen so clearly in nature and even more clearly and beautifully in Scripture. And finally, though, it's seen in Christ. The greatest and last word, the final word. Think of the beginning of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power and after making purification for sins, for, for the sins of his people, those hidden, those presumptuous, our rebellion against him, after he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels. It's the name he has inherited as much more excellent than theirs. Folks, this psalm tells us so much. The glory of God is prevalent everywhere. It's the most prevalent in the Son who gave himself for us, who made purification of sins, Let's get to know him. Let's rest in him. Let's follow the advice of the Psalms that blessed are all who take refuge in the King who reigns. Let's learn how to do that as we spend time in his word, as we, as we see his glory in creation, as we encourage one another. What a joy and privilege we have to know the God of glory in the face of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for all that you've given us, how you love us and care for us. We pray that you would draw us nearer and nearer to you in all things. Give us of your wisdom and grace. Thank you that you have in the scriptures. Teach us more of who you are through your word. Give us a longing a greater and greater longing for your word. Because in your word, we learn of you. We know you. We know Christ. And so help us to rest in that and take refuge. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.